it's time for us to get into God's Word together. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Leviticus. If you need a Bible, raise your hands, and the lovely folks in the aisles will be happy to supply one for you. Um, this morning, we are, are starting a new series through the book of Leviticus. If you are new to our church and uh, new to our, our preaching and teaching ministry, um, we are committed to what's called expositional preaching. That's where you take a passage of the Bible and you expose the meaning of that passage and you apply it to the life of the congregation. And normally we are doing what's called sequential exposition, which means we are going through a, a book of the Bible sequence by sequence. That could be chapter by chapter or verse by verse. Um, and, and the reason we are committed to that is because we believe God speaks and we believe God speaks in his word. And we believe that the thoughts of God, the teaching of God, uh, is what God's people need most. Uh, and so the word has life, the word has power. And so we want to expose the meaning of the word so that life and that power are transferred to his people. And so we're going to begin a series of, of expositions in Leviticus. There are 27 chapters in Leviticus. Uh, and so we will walk through these chapters in, in big chunks two or three chapters at a time, one chapter at a time. But in order to get our orientation, we're going to start this morning with an overview where I'm going to try in a reasonable amount of time to give you the, the sort of gist and the meaning of Leviticus as a whole book. And then with that kind of overview, sort of like a map in front of us, we can kind of know where we are uh, in this book as we work through it chapter by chapter. Amen? Amen. So let me, let's go. Let's get in it. Let's get in it. All right, well, let's pray. <laughs> Father, we thank you for the book of Leviticus. We pray that if any of us have been avoiding it, that you would forgive us. And if any of us have thought it too difficult, that you would enlighten our minds. If any of us, O oh Lord, have um, turned away from it thinking it was unnecessary, Lord, we pray, show us Christ in this book. Show us, O oh Lord, what you have done for us in your sacrifice on the cross and your resurrection. Show us what you have done for us in spreading uh, your table before us, O oh Lord, and calling us to come eat and sup with you. Show us, O oh Lord, what, what joy we may have as we worship you in the beauty of holiness. Bless this time in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's start with just a, a broad introduction to the book of Leviticus, and, and in fact, to the, to the law, to the Pentateuch. Uh, some of you will know that word, the Pentateuch. Uh, it's a fancy word that just basically means Pentafi, the first five books of the Bible. These are also called the books of Moses because Moses is thought to be the author of these books. Uh, and these books are really the, the sort of foundation, the cornerstone of ancient Israel and the religion and the civil society of ancient Israel. If you want to sort of go to a constitution for the Old Testament, a constitution for the Israelites, you can't do much better than to go back to the five books of Moses where it all begins. And these books hang together. So Genesis tells us the story, first of all, of creation, how God created everything in Genesis chapters 1 to 10 or 1 to 11. But then it tells us also not only the story of creation, but the story of salvation, how God begins to make for himself a people, beginning with one man named Abram in chapter 12, and then growing Exodus 
opens with a family of 70 and all the people who come from them in slavery in Egypt. And so now a new person steps on the scene, not Abraham anymore, but Moses. Moses steps on the scene as a deliverer of God's people. You remember the 10 plagues on Egypt where God kept saying to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may come and worship me. And so God delivers, he delivers his people Israel, an innumerable number of people now from bondage and slavery. And so that's what's told in the first part of Exodus, the deliverance. Then in the middle part of Exodus, you get the demands of God. We get the Ten Commandments and various laws that are given to us or given to Israel by God. And the last section of Exodus, 25 to 40, you get God dwelling with his people. You go from deliverance to demands to dwelling. First comes freedom. Then comes obedience. Then comes communion. And so Exodus 34, or excuse me, Exodus 40 is this way. Moses has gotten instruction from God on how to build a tabernacle, a, a tent of meeting where God would meet with his people, and gotten instruction on how to build the furnishings of the tabernacle, all the things that will go in and be a part of Israel's worship. And when Moses has done all of that and, and they have dedicated the tabernacle to God, this is what we read in Exodus chapter 40. If you, so if you're in Leviticus chapter 1, if you just look over at the, at the next page, on your left, you'll be in Exodus 40, the last four verses, five verses, Exodus 40, beginning in verse 34. Then the cloud, it's the cloud of God's glory, covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. That's how Exodus ends. With God's glory being seen by God's people and God's people being led in and out by this display of God's glory. Now, the first word in the book of Leviticus, if you were literally translating it, is the word and. So Leviticus is really continuing from Exodus. It is almost sort of a part one and a part two. So Leviticus 1 verse 1 should say, and the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. That very place, the tabernacle. Come speak to them. And God said, verse 2, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. So now in Leviticus, what God is about to do is to continue speaking with Moses from the tent of meeting where his glory is seen to give Moses further instruction on how the people should worship him, how the people should come to him how the people could know him and enjoy him. 
Now, scholars tell us that the entire book of Exodus was written in about 30 days from what we saw at the end of Exodus until its completion. So this is happening roughly in a, in a month's time frame and being given to Israel for their worship. Now, Leviticus is mostly a book of laws or instructions on, on worship and care for neighbor and things of that sort. But in the middle are a couple of passages of, of story, of narrative, of history. So Leviticus chapter 10 with Nadab and Abihu and that event. A little bit later around Leviticus chapter 23 or so, a, a story of a man who commits blasphemy and what happens there. So there are a couple of little narrative sections, but overall, it's law, it's instruction, it's regulation for the people of Israel so that they might understand how to worship their God. Now, the central idea of Leviticus is this. So if you want to get Leviticus in one verse, in one sentence, in one idea, a good candidate would be Leviticus 11, verse 44. Le Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44 says this, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. That's the whole charter, really, of Leviticus, is God's concern that he be known as their God, as a holy God, and that they be, as his people, a holy people. Be holy, for I am holy. And beloved, that's not just the central sort of message of Leviticus, but that's a central concern also in New Testament Christianity. So this very language and the sort of images and ideas that we get from Leviticus, they are really foundational to the New Testament as well. And these images are often drawn on by the New Testament writers. So, for example, 1 Peter chapter 1. So if you want to keep your finger in Leviticus and turn over to the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, thinking very much about the, the ideas uh, of Leviticus and the Old Testament sacrificial system, uh, writes this in verses 14 to 16. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was holy when he delivered Israel. He was holy when he sent Jesus. He is holy right now. He wanted his old covenant people to be holy. And in the coming of Christ, he doesn't do away with that desire. He wants his new covenant people to be holy as well. And this begs two questions of us. What does holy mean? And number two, how do we become holy? What does holy mean? And how do we become holy? If you're taking notes, those are really going to be the sort of two questions we answer uh, in this sermon. What does it mean? And how do we become it? And that, I think, is what Leviticus is answering for the ancient Israelites and giving us a picture, a commercial as an answer for us as New Testament Christians. So let's answer the questions in reverse. How do we become holy? The 
a massively important question because God in his holiness really has nothing to do with sin. And sinners in our sin really have no way to approach God. Not, not in our sins, not without some help, not without some divine. Question goes to our existence and our fellowship with God and our knowing him and his accepting us. And in Leviticus, I want to suggest to you as we zoom out now, remember, we're taking a big picture view of the book. In Leviticus, uh, I want to suggest to you that answer, that question is answered in the first 10 chapters or so in two ways. Number one, how do we become holy? Number one, holiness requires sacrifice for sin. We must have a sacrifice for our sins. So let's outline the first little section of the book here a little bit. Chapters one through three open up by covering the, the five offerings that are, that are required of Israel. Chapter one is the burnt offering. Chapter two is the grain offering. Chapter three gives us instructions for the peace offering. And we move over into chapters four and five, chapter four, the sin offering, and chapter five, the guilt offering. So five offerings there that in some way all have to do with this notion of atonement for sin and fellowship with God. So the burnt offering is often used as an offering to, to signify praise. We are exalting God and delighting in God and, and praising God. And interestingly, it is the most costly of the offerings. Requires a, a bull or a calf, right, a, that's unblemished. Number two, the grain offering is often an offering that goes along with many of the other offerings. And again, next week, we'll, we'll think about these more closely. So this is a high-level overview that often goes along with the other offerings. Again, a, an offering of, of praise of some sort. And then we come to the peace offering, right, which I think is the only offering where both the priest and the people eat from the offering because it, it, it signifies a, a communion meal with God, a fellowship meal with God, eating again with God. We will celebrate the New Testament version of that as we conclude the service this morning in the Lord's Supper, as we sup with God and commune with God in light of Christ's sacrifice for us. And then you have the sin offering and the guilt offering, which are pretty much what they sound like. These are offerings that are meant to, here's the key word, make atonement. For our sin, to make atonement for our sin. Fancy Bible and theological word that means to make at one meant, to make us at one again with God. You see, because this is the nature of sin. Sin breaks our fellowship with God. Sin breaks our communion with God. Sin puts distance between us and God, and that's both terrible and necessary. It's terrible to be made by God and for God and yet to be pushed out of his presence. But it's also necessary that we be pushed out of his presence because to be in his presence in our sin would really result in our death. So glorious and holy is God. And so you can see chapter one, verse four, we're talking here about the, the burnt offering and the priest shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Or look over again in chapter four, verse 20. 
where they're speaking ab about the guilt offering, or excuse me, the sin offering, um, Moses writes this in verse 20. Thus shall he do with the bull as he did with the bull of the sin offering, so shall he do with this, and the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. Or in chapter 5, verse 16, once again, he shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest and the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering and he shall be forgiven. Now, one of the things to know about the sacrifices of Israel is that these laws requiring these sacrifices are not meant to be burdens. This is not merely duty. This is not some cold set of regulations that some grumpy old God requires of his people. And most of us in this room, we don't come from places where sacrifice is, is still common. So we don't necessarily have the sort of framework that would have been in mind for the ancient Israelite. In ancient Israel, in the ancient cultures, almost everybody's making sacrifices, whether to pagan gods or here to the one true God. And, and you can tell that this is, this is a common idea to Israel because when God gives instructions about the sacrifices, there's a lot here that goes on in sacrifices that he never mentions. But Israel seems to know. Let me give you an example. In ancient Israel, if you were sacrificing a goat or in ancient pagan cultures, if you're sacrificing a goat, you would tie its legs together. But nowhere in Exodus is that mentioned. And yet that's precisely what Abraham does, for example, when he goes to offer his son. Right? He gets the goat, he ties his legs, etc. So there are things that are sort of commonly known here that make sense to the ancient Israelite that's sort of foreign to us. And that's what part of what makes the book feel sometimes foreign to us. But there are other things that are missing as well. So, for example, nowhere in this text in the book of Leviticus are we told what the priests actually say to the person who brings the offering to make the sacrifice. We're told here that the priest will do the sacrifice and atonement will be made for the forgiveness of his sins. But I imagine there's some conversation that happens between the, the Israelite worshiper and the priest, right? The Israelite worshiper probably has to come and say, yeah, look, I need to confess something in terms of my sin. And here I'm bringing the offering as God prescribes. And the priest is probably giving some kind of blessing, maybe the, the ironic blessing or something. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. We don't know, but we assume that that, that, that goes on. For them, sacrifice would have been a, a commonplace in their culture. And here's the important thing. It would have most often been celebratory. So these sacrifices are also meant to shape the emotional worship of Israel. They're not just cold external things, but they're meant to inflame the heart. This idea that I can come to God and offer a sacrifice for my sins, which are against God and against my neighbor and maybe against myself, which are terrorizing my conscience. And I can find from this same holy God the promise, the assurance of forgiveness and pardon. It's meant to make the heart glad. It's meant to make us rejoice. And so the, you know, these sacrifices can feel sort of, again, weird and strange and old to us, but know this, in the same way that we are meant to rejoice at the Lord's Supper, in the same way that we're meant to rejoice when we hear a conversion testimony at baptism, 
in the same way that those New Testament rituals are meant to make us glad in the Lord, so these sacrifices for the ancient Israelites was meant to make them glad in the Lord, to have atonement for their sin, to be at one again with God. Now, while we're on this notion of atonement and a sacrifice being necessary for us to be holy in the presence of God, we ought to note at least one other thing here. Not only does sin break our relationship with God and therefore we need atonement, but notice something from chapters four and five. Our sin is real and the consequences are real and we are really guilty even when we did not intend to sin or knew we sinned. Look with me, chase this. Leviticus chapter four, verse two. Notice what, the, what Moses says here. Speak to the people of Israel saying, if anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the appointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. You see that word there? Unintentional. It's the bell that's going to be rung through the next two chapters. Verse 13. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally. So we've gone from anyone or a leader in verses 2 and 3 to now the whole congregation. Or verse 22. When a leader sins, doing unintentionally. Verse 27. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally. So don't be looking all hard at the pastor and not at yourself. Chapter 5, verse 14, if anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally, or verse 17, if anyone sins, doing any of the things that by the Lord's commands ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then he realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. Our sin is real, whether or not we intended it. A lot of people, when talking about their sins and transgressions and their faults, they retreat to their intentions as if that's justification. God knows my heart. I didn't mean to. I didn't know. Now, that, that might be fine horizontally, man to man, person to person, to talk about intention and to, to think about intention as a way of, of then sort of helping us understand the impact. But before a holy God who's infinite in his holiness, our intention does not excuse us. You realize, beloved, we have enough unintentional sin to condemn us to hell even before we get to the things that we meant to do and knew were wrong. That what we call mistakes and faults and my bads really are bad, objectively so, apart from whether we knew it or intended it. They really are bad before a holy God. And this is why no one will escape God's judgment apart from a sacrifice. 
apart from atonement, apart from atonement that will make up for the sins we willfully committed with a stiff neck and the sins we unintentionally committed and weren't even aware of. I wonder when you think about your sin, do you take it that seriously? I wonder when you think about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, I wonder if we are more inclined to identify with man in his sin than with God in his holiness. That we know is wrong by retreating to our intent or whether we are tempted to repent even of our intention and of our ignorance. You've heard the cliche, ignorance is no excuse before the law. Nowhere is that more true than before the law of God. Our ignorance will be no excuse. And so we need with this holy God an atoning sacrifice to make us holy with him. But there's something else that we need. Number two, we're going to need, number two, not only a atoning sacrifice, but we're going to need a mediator with God. We're going to need someone who mediates, who stands between us as sinful humanity and, and, and a holy God who, as it were, joins us hand to hand, who helps to reconcile us and to bring us back to each other. Now, when Leviticus is written, I want you to get the picture. They're, they're at the Mount Sinai, they've gotten the law, they've built the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord has come to the tabernacle, the whole, the whole nation is assembled around the tabernacle, they've just been brought out of Egypt in bondage to slavery, and they're on the way to the promised land, and as we said, God is building his nation, he's building for himself. Ask ourselves, is in, in nation building, if we were building our own nation, where would we start? particularly when it comes to leadership, what, what leader would we start with? Now, I guess many of us would want to start with a, a king or a president. So we want to start with someone who is leader by virtue of their heredity or leader by virtue of a, a common election. We're going to start, we think, from the top down. But Israel now is a theocracy. That means they're governed by God. And the king in this theocracy is God himself. So ain't no elections, ain't no need for a president. It's not till we come to, uh, I think it's Samuel, uh, where, where Israel hits the, the bottom and rejects God as their king, and they want a king like the other nations. But right here, God is king, and when he builds his nation, notice what he, st notice what he starts with. In the bulk of this book, the, the big figure is the priest. He starts with the priesthood. If you want to build a holy nation, you're going to need priests. And priests here have two responsibilities. It is, as we have seen, to take care of the sacrifices in the temple or in the tabernacle, excuse me. But along with this, more implicit in all of this is a ministry of teaching. They are going to also be the teachers of the people, teaching them God's word, helping them to understand God's word, helping them to apply God's word. And in their, in their work of offering the sacrifices, they are serving this mediator role this go-between role between God and his people. And so we're not surprised then that chapters um, 8, 9, and 10, and then a little bit later on, chapters 21 and 22, all focus on 
the priesthood. And what God says he wants here is a, a holy priesthood. He wants holy mediators between himself and his people. So in chapters 6, 7, and 8, we get the responsibilities for the offerings. And so God gives instructions to the priests on how to manage the offerings. Uh, chapter 6, verse 8, this is the law of the burnt offerings and then all of the instructions. And he does that with all five offerings, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the peace offering. But then notice in chapters 8 and 9, he, he not only instructs the priests, but he consecrates them. He sets them apart as holy. That's what consecrates means. He sets them apart and dedicates them as holy unto himself. That means their whole life, their whole ministry, their whole way of being is meant to be dedicated to God, right? And so in chapter eight, he has Moses anoint Aaron and his sons as the priests. And in chapter nine, they, they are, or, or chapter eight, they make the sacrifice. In chapter nine, uh, they, they get the consecration and the glory of the Lord again appears this time in response to this consecration of the priesthood. Look with me in chapter eight, verses 10 to 13. Chapter eight, verses 10 to 13. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. So everything that goes into the worship of God, from the utensils in the tabernacle to the priests themselves, are consecrated and anointed and set aside for God's use. Now notice what happens in Leviticus 9, verses 22 to 24. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. And so God intends to have a ministry on which his glory rests. A ministry that is holy and acceptable, symbolized here in God consuming the sacrifice that was offered for their consecration. But do you know what happened in the very next verses? Look at chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed, notice, not the offering, consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Almost as soon as the human priesthood is established, 
to mediate between God and man, it fails. I mean, they just, the oil is still wet on them. And, and the next thing we see is Aaron's sons making a sacrifice, making an offering. Notice that it's described as unauthorized fire. We don't know in what way it was unauthorized, etc. but it's explained here that it was not as God had commanded them. Make a note here. God has always intended that his worship be governed by his word. We are not at liberty to approach a holy God any way we choose. It must be in accord with his word. And, and then now, now, again, notice what happens. At the end of chapter 9, they all see the glory of the Lord. Consume the sacrifice. It says all the people that would have included Nadab and Abihu. And we have to ask the question, how do we go from looking at the glory of the Lord with our own eyes to doing whatever we want before the Lord? It's the irrationality of sin. Sin will make you crazy. And a sinful man is bored with the glory of God. This is why if you're bored with church, if you're bored with the word of God, if you're bored with the praise of God, if you're bored with evangelism, you might want to be still before the Lord for a moment. You might want to ask him to help you with your heart, to help him with your perspective, because the thing that most excites God, the revelation of his splendor, the revelation of his majesty, the revealing of his glory, the thing that most excites God, if it doesn't excite you and me is a sure sign that there's a problem with our hearts. Nadab and Abihu, notice, they wanted to do their own thing. They wanted to come to God, I'm sure, in a way that they thought was convenient, in a way that they thought was pleasing, maybe in a way that they thought, well, is acceptable. But who gets to decide what's acceptable in the worship of God? The worshiper or the one worshiped? It is the one worshipped. It is God himself who regulates his worship and decides what is acceptable. Beloved, we can become more committed to our preferences than we are to God's word. Notice, again, the text just simply says they offered unauthorized fire. The issue wasn't that they were worshipping but how they worshiped him and that they did it contrary to what God had positively commanded. And you know, the kick in the head, we skimmed over it, but God just spent seven chapters telling them exactly how to do it. Seven whole chapters on how to do this thing. And as soon as they get consecrated, they decide they're going to do their own thing. I don't know about you, beloved, but this is what it means for God to be holy. He's fearsome. He is a consuming fire. He is not to be trifled with. He's not arbitrary. He's not mean. He's loving and gracious. The whole thing here is about making atonement with him and him bringing his people to himself. He's not mean and, 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 and cruel and, and vindictive, but he is holy. He's not a plush toy. And 
not everything that pleases him. Notice what God says. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. When God says he will do something or be something, you better believe he will be something or do something. That his people will consider his name hallowed, holy, and that his people will see and love his glory. God's holiness and God's glory are non-negotiable. Notice Leviticus chapter 16, verses 1 to 2. This is the chapter that details the, the greatest sacrifice in Israel's history, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. This sacrifice was made once a year in a very special way. The high priest had to approach God in a very special way. And it was for the sins of the, of the whole nation. It's a, it's a high holy day. It's a day of great celebration and a, great, a day of great affliction of oneself in terms of mourning for their sin. And notice what's said in verses 1 and 2. This is just a couple of days after the death of Nadab and Abihu. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place. Here's a God who can't just be approached any kind of way because he's holy. And our approach to God, Israel's approach to God, was a matter of life and death. Whether they got it right or wrong had great consequences. Now, all that we're seeing here in the way of sacrifices for sin and atonement, all that we're seeing here in terms of a mediator between God and man, I trust you've already seen is a commercial for Jesus. That all of this is pointing to Christ, who is the who is the real sacrifice of God and who is the, the sole mediator between God and man. I love the way Matthew Henry reflecting on this says, there is in these things a type of the sufferings of the son of God who was to be a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. The burning body of an animal was but a faint representation of that everlasting misery which we all have deserved and which our blessed Lord bore in his body and his soul when he died under the load of our iniquities. And Matthew Henry didn't make that up. This is what the New Testament writers understood too. So if you wish, turn with me to um, Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. So Hebrews 9, 11, let me double check that. Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews reflects so much on the Levitical priesthood and the Levitical system. Interprets those sacrifices in terms of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And so we find in Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. But when Christ appeared, notice, as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect, notice, tent or tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. 
He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Verse 15, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promise inheritance. Everything we read in Leviticus should be read by the Christian with great joy because it's pointing us to Jesus, our Savior, who is the better sacrifice and the better mediator of a better covenant with better promises. They had to make these sacrifices daily and yearly, on and on and on. The priest in the Old Testament system had to sacrifice for himself because he too was a sinner. Those things could only purify the body and make us clean symbolically. But Jesus, who had no sin, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, offered his body and his blood once and for all for our redemption and eternal life. This is good news, beloved. This is good news that's yours today if you're here and you're a Christian, and maybe yours today if you're here and you're not yet a Christian. For your sins, you need a sacrifice. I was just thinking for a moment when we were talking about unintentional sins. Were you aware of ever having unintentionally sinned? Of course you were. We all have. And, and were you, do you know that that sin makes you guilty with God? Oh, you say, well, why have I been judged yet? But God is patient with you, beloved. And his patience is meant to lead you to repentance, to lead you to turn away from sin and put your faith in him. And I beg you to do so this morning, to put your faith in the son of God who died as the only sacrifice that can really take away your guilt, that can really wash you clean of your sin, that can really bring peace between you and God, that can really make you worthy and acceptable for God to offer praises to him. Put your faith in the living God, in the son of God, and be saved this morning from the judgment that we all deserve. This is the good news to you. No one who trusts in Jesus will ever be turned away, but will be accepted by God and loved by God and made righteous by God and will live forever in glory with God. Do that this morning, beloved. One other quick application before we move from the sacrifices to the second point here. Just another note, uh, just to mention again, the, the cost of these sacrifices. That when the Israelite was called to make offerings to God, he was called to bring his best or her best to bring animals that did not have a blemish, to bring a, a whole in a, in a farming society, an agrarian society, that wasn't cheap. That was costly. 
And you may recall when David once had to make offering to the Lord and someone offered him a, a threshing floor and a place to make it. Say, oh, no, David, take this for free. David refused to do that. But he said, shall I, shall I worship God and it not cost me anything? Our offerings to God ought be costly if our offerings are worship. Worship is a word that simply means worth-ship. We are ascribing worth to something when we worship. When we give as an act of worship, we, we should be ascribing worth, value. We should be saying, in other words, something about how much God means to us in our offering. And so I'm going to ask you this question. Do your offerings cost you anything? Do our offerings cost us anything? Or do we merely offer to God what feels light to us, convenient to us, insignificant to us? Now, God has provided for himself an offering that saves us. And we ought to think of how costly that was. His one and only son offered in the place of sinners for sinners. How much fulfillment of the cross ought our very lives be offered to God and all that we have? This is what I love about the example of Alex and Brittany. You realize they're laying it down. They're laying it down. Their lives, their plans, their futures, even their good ambitions, like to serve in pastoral ministry, they are laying it down in ministry and in marriage. Even to be Mr. and Mrs., there was a season where Brittany was laying it down, her own desires in some way, to be joyfully united to Alex and the calling that the Lord had placed on them as a family. They're laying it down. Are you laying it down, beloved? Are you laying down your life as an offering to God? And all that you have is an offering to God. Does it cost you anything to serve the Lord? It should. It should cost us. We should ascribe worth to the Lord in the way that we worship him. Which brings us to our second point, which we will move through more quickly. Well, that's how we become holy. We need a sacrifice for our sins and a mediator to bring us to God. And Jesus is all of that. But now secondly, then, how do, what does holiness mean? In this book and throughout the Bible, you get actually a number of definitions of holiness. And just in terms of a theme and surveying this book, I want to pull up three for us. The next section of the, of the book of Leviticus, chapters 11 through um, really about 15, 16, if you include the Day of Atonement, this is, this is entirely a section that deals with the notion, the idea of clean and unclean. What is ritually clean, what is ceremonially clean, and what is unclean? And this idea is a, is a, is a picture, really, of, of holiness, being ceremonially clean or pure before God. So I'll just give you the headers here. If you look at chapter 11. Uh, we're talking about uh, clean and unclean animals, what animals might be eaten or not eaten, what animals might be touched or not touched, 
in chapters 12 to 15, we're talking about human purity and particularly as it relates to our bodies and, and bodily discharges. So chapter 12 focuses on childbirth, cleanness and uncleanness after childbirth. Chapter 13 and 14 focus on leprosy, the cleanness and uncleanness of the leper and not just the leper, but the leper's clothes, the leper's house, uh, everything the leper touches and instructions for cleansing of leprosy. Chapter 15, a range of bodily discharges. Uh, when you talk about the Bible just being plain and just sort of everyday matter of fact, I mean, it just gets into all kinds of discharges of the body and, and what makes us clean or, or unclean in that way. Now, in all of this clean and unclean, blemished or unblemished, again, we're just getting pictures, we're getting symbols of what it means to be acceptable before God. That, that if we are holy, then we are people who are declared to be clean before God. That we are people without blemish before God. Now, they were making these symbolic sacrifices and obeying these laws in order to have that ceremonial cleanness. But we, we have no further sacrifice. We have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. We have been purified by the blood of Christ. And this is meant to be something that we preach to ourselves and that we remember. And this is meant to be something that governs then what we do with our bodies, how we live. Second Corinthians chapter 6. Second Corinthians chapter 6 from verse 14 down to chapter 7 verse 1. Paul draws on this notion from, from Leviticus in the Old Testament about cleanness. He says in verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's the one part of this most Christians have heard, right? Usually misapplied, but that's okay. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness, right? These are, these are things that can't coexist. What accord has Christ with Belial? How are you going to put the one Savior together with a false idol, a false God? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What, what inheritance, what future do we have in common with people who don't share our faith? What agreement has a temple of God with idols? For we, not a tenth of meeting, we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And no thing, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So he's quoting the Old Testament, right? Then he says this in chapter 7, verse 1. Since therefore, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. He's saying, since God has made us his people and God dwells among us and, and God has saved us through his son, let us go on to holiness. Let us go on to clean living. Let us go on as, as temples of the living God to purify ourselves, to cleanse ourselves. Let us commit ourselves to the process of sanctification, of growing in holiness. 
We are made holy by the sacrifice of Christ. That position won't change. But we are also becoming holy in the process of sanctification, work that we have to do every day. And so Leviticus and the New Testament teaches us that holiness is cleanliness. Again, you probably heard the cliche, what is it, godliness is next to cleanliness? Cleanliness is next to godliness? Yeah, I got it backwards. Cleanliness is next to godliness. That's not far off, is it? If we would be godly, if we would be holy, we should seek cleanliness. We should live pure before the Lord. Well, the second thing that we see there in terms of how Leviticus talks about holiness is that holiness also requires being like God in character. So there's cleanliness and then there's character. Here now, um, Leviticus is teaching us something about not just the external body purification, but it's teaching us something about the moral, the internal character of the worshiper. And so chapter 18 has laws against various forms of sexual immorality. Then various neighbor love laws are there in chapter 19, how we treat our neighbors. Certain punishments are are detailed for us um, in in, in regard to child sacrifice and sexual immorality and the occult practices. We see that in chapter 20. And then chapters 21 and 22 focus on the holiness of the priesthood, a holiness that should exceed um, the people there, right? And so now God is is, is sort of focusing us on the the moral character of holiness. It's not merely the the external sort of rituals that the people perform to cleanse themselves bodily. It is also an internal cleansing that we anticipate. It cleans ourselves spiritually. And you'll notice here that 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 gets expressed in what we do with our bodies. Whether, Whether we are morally right will oftentimes express itself in what we physically do. And so God takes interest, for example, in our sexual lives. And so chapter 19 goes through, or excuse me, chapter 18 goes through a long series of different sexual things that are prohibited before a holy God. Well, is God just being a prude? Is he Victorian? Repressed? No. Our maker knows how we should work. Our maker knows what leads to our flourishing. Our maker knows what is good and right in and of itself. And because our maker is for us, he calls us away from those things that are bad for us into those things that are good for us, even in our most intimate decisions, like who we are intimate with. That's an area of our lives that must be under the lordship of Christ. If we would be holy, And how we think about those things should be determined by the word of God if we should be morally holy. And how we treat others, not just how we treat ourselves, should be be in accord with God's word. We should love our neighbors as ourselves. Look at Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Leviticus 19, verse 18. says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is one of the most frequently quoted verses by Jesus in the New Testament. Did you know that? 
This is maybe his favorite Bible verse if we're just judging about a number of times he quotes it. That you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the whole law hangs on basically our love for God and our love for neighbor. And so holiness has a public dimension. Don't miss this, beloved. Holiness has a public dimension. Holiness is meant to go public in the moral ways in which we love our neighbors, even our enemies. Right? So the Bible knows nothing of a Christianity where a Christian is thought to be moral individually, privately, but can live immorally publicly with their neighbor. The Bible knows nothing of a Christian who can consider himself righteous and yet treat unfairly the sojourner and the widow and the orphan and other vulnerable people. He knows nothing of a faith that's entirely spiritual but has no implications for the world that we live in. God's law doesn't work that way. God's gospel doesn't work that way. If we are moral people with a character like God's, then shall we not always do what's right with our neighbor? Shall we not always do what's just and loving and kind with our neighbor? That's what chapter 19 teaches us. It's what the whole of the New Testament teaches us. And then we should see, finally, that there's not only a kind of holiness that's talked here that's defined by cleanliness and a holiness that's defined by character, but there's a holiness that's defined by consecration. It's defined by consecration. Chapter 23 has all the feasts that are meant to be observed. There's a whole calendar for Israel there in chapter 23 about when they are to gather and to celebrate and to feast before the Lord. The Lord loves eating. Loves to have his people eating. He's a good God, the real good God. And so his, his worship with him and communion with him and holiness before him is depicted in part by being with him and eating in a celebratory way. So you get all of those feasts, which again points to the Lord's Supper ultimately. Not only do we get the feast, but uh, we also get further instructions about worship and justice. Uh, chapter 24 is that section where the man commits blasphemy and is put to death for blasphemy. God's name is going to be honored among all, right? And then we go from that, and then we start to, the, to chapter 25. If, if we were dividing a simple outline for Leviticus, if we were giving a simple outline for Leviticus, we might take chapters 1 through 17, and we talk about the responsibility of the priests, and we might take chapters 18 to 27, and talk about the responsibilities of the people. It'll be a broad division. And, and in those two divisions, we get, again, what Jesus referred to as the first part could be sort of summarized as, as love for God, and the second part as love for neighbor, right? And we come down to chapter 25, and we get this celebration called the year of Jubilee. This period every 49, 50 years where the, the whole year is a Sabbath. There's no planting. There's no reaping. But the land is going to supply for the people. And it's this year where everything is redeemed, right? Those who have been sold into bondage, they are redeemed and set free. Property that has been sold has been redeemed and reclaimed by the property owners. Any animals that have been devoted, redeemed. This is this year of great freedom. Because listen, beloved, God wants people to know and enjoy freedom. And in that freedom, he wants them to worship him, to know he's good, 
It just runs right through the Bible. And then we come to Genesis chapter 26, where we get covenant blessings and curses. So very simple structure. The first few verses is, if you obey me, these are the blessings that are going to come. But if you disobey me, these are the judgments that are going to come. Before we come to chapter 27, where the book ends with this idea idea of entire consecration to God. That the things that are devoted to God remain God's. Look with me in verse 20, chapter 27, beginning. But no devoted thing that a man devotes to the Lord of anything that he has, whether man or beast or of his inherited field, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. No one devoted who is to be devoted for destruction from mankind shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. What does that mean? Once you give something to God, it is God's. Once you consecrate something to God or devote something to God, it is holy, meaning it is meant only to be used by God and for God. And so if we devote ourselves or devote our possessions or devote our families or anything else we devote to God, if it is devoted to God, it is not meant to be revoked, but to forever belong to God. Now, I'm old enough when people could say things that today are politically incorrect and nobody thought much about it. We've grown a little bit as a society. I'm going to use this. I don't mean to be politically incorrect, but just to identify with some older folk like me here. Some of y'all probably remember when you used to have a little friend who give you something and take it back. What do we call them? An Indian giver, right? You're an Indian giver. We should have been calling them a little colonialist giver or something. The Indians were the one who owned the land, right? We had little phrases for that stuff, right? And this is what God is saying to us in this text in a much more holy way, don't be an Indian giver. Don't be a, someone who makes a promise and reneges on it. Not with God. Because holiness is this kind of consecration, this kind of full dedication of ourselves and everything else that we devote to God without reneging. We see a stunning picture of this in the New Testament, don't we? Acts chapter 5. Remember Ananias and Sapphira, a husband and wife couple, they sold some of their property. They said they were going to devote the proceeds to the Lord. But you know how you start to count your money and you start to get stingy. And he started counting the money. So, you know what? We're going to hold back this little piece right here because, you know, there's a cruise next week. And so we give the Lord this other piece. But God knew, didn't he? And there in Acts chapter five, they, they died because of their unfaithfulness to God. Beloved, what you give to God, make sure it remains God's. If we would be holy, then we want to grow in a character like God's. We want to live a life that's clean before God. And we want to consecrate ourselves and our things to God. That's the life that's pleasing to God. And it is, beloved, a joyful life. It's the best life. What do you need to address that may be clean or unclean? 
what aspect of God's character do we need to grow in? What should we be consecrating to God and make sure it remains his? We are to be holy for God is holy. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, we thank you for the book of Leviticus and we thank you for the journey that you have marked out for us in this book. We hear you when you say, be holy, for I am holy. We tremble before it. We are aware of our failures in holiness. And so we pray and rejoice. We pray for and rejoice at the promise of your grace. We thank you for the sacrifice of Christ, for in him is all the holiness we will ever need to stand before you fully accepted. And in him and by his spirit is all that we need for life and godliness to grow in holiness until the day that you come. So Lord, we pray, keep us from the error that so many people have made when they have looked away from Christ and looked back to the Old Testament and forgotten the grace that's in Christ. Keep us from that. Indeed, help us to keep looking forward from sacrifice to sacrifice, from feast to feast, from law to law. Help us to keep looking to the one who satisfies it all on our behalf in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Looking to Christ, who is our sanctification, our holiness, our righteousness. Let us feed upon him, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.